This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and book recommendation episodes, as well as insider information on all of the newest releases that I personally endorse and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations, to find my backlist of interviews, or to check out my summer reading guide for 2023, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. There is also a link to the summer reading guide in the show notes. Have you read a book recently that really resonated with you and makes you want to read more books like it? If so, submit a read-alike request to me through the Google form included in today's show notes and tell me why you loved it, and I will suggest some similar reads on a future Tuesday episode. If you are interested in reading some great books before they publish, I hope you'll consider joining my Patreon group to access digital early reads and pre-pub author chats, as well as my new Traveling Galley program. July's early read is The Book of Silver Linings by Nan Fisher, and for August, it is Mother-Daughter Murder Night by Nina Simon. The link to join is in the show notes. Today, Kathleen Grissom joins me to talk about Crow Mary. Kathleen is the New York Times bestselling author of The Kitchen House and Glory Over Everything. Born and raised in Saskatchewan, she is now happily rooted in Southside, Virginia. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And now for my read-alike request segment. While every book is unique and stands alone, certain elements of books we love really stick with us. While lots of websites use algorithms to try and recommend similar books, I rarely find that these recommendations make sense because they do not focus on what it is that I liked about a particular book. This is what I want to tap into, the aspects of the book that appealed to the requester and to focus on finding those elements in other books. Today's request is from Adrian, and she selected The Hotel Nantucket by Ellen Hildebrand, a book that I have not read. After a tragic fire in 1922 that killed 19-year-old chambermaid Grace Hadley, The Hotel Nantucket descended from a Gilded Age gem to a mediocre budget-friendly lodge to inevitably an abandoned eyesore, until it's purchased and renovated top to bottom by London billionaire Xavier Darling. Xavier hires Nantucket sweetheart Lisbeth Keaton as his general manager, and Lisbeth, in turn, pulls together a charismatic, if inexperienced, staff who share the vision of turning the fate of the hotel around. Adrienne enjoyed the book because she loved the common theme of hospitality. She could visualize the hotel setting, and she so badly wanted to taste the food. She says she adored the setting and the details about working at the hotel. My first recommendation for a read-alike for The Hotel Nantucket is The Dollhouse by Fiona Davis. In The Dollhouse, Fiona chronicles the lush world of New York City's glamorous Barbizon Hotel for Women, where in the 1950s, a generation of aspiring models, secretaries, and editors lived side-by-side side while attempting to claw their way to fairy tale success, and where a present-day journalist becomes consumed with uncovering a dark secret buried deep within the Barbizon's glitzy past. Davis includes so many entertaining details about the Barbizon, the Odeon chandelier, the Art Deco decor and furnishings, 
and what it was like to live there in the 1950s and 60s. I think this is a good read-alike for the Hotel Nantucket, because the focus is on a particular hotel and the hospitality industry, with the added benefit of details about what life was like at an iconic hotel. My next recommendation is The Last Days of Café Leila by Donia Bajan. Set against the backdrop of Iran's rich, turbulent history, this exquisite debut novel is a powerful story of food, family, and a bittersweet homecoming. I was transported to Tehran, and particularly Café Leila, frequently feeling like I could visualize the café and its environs along with the Persian meals and foliage. I loved learning about Persian food and customs, and the manner in which residents did their best to adhere to and keep alive traditions that had been banned for so many years. While this beautiful book focuses on more than hospitality and food, I think it is a great read-alike for the Hotel Nantucket because the food is so vividly described that I wanted to sit and eat at Cafe Layla, and Adrian mentioned wanting to taste the food in the Hotel Nantucket. The last recommendation for a read-alike for the Hotel Nantucket is The Last Summer at the Golden Hotel by Alyssa Friedland. I have not read this one, but the descriptions make it sound like a really good fit. In The Last Summer at the Golden Hotel, long-buried secrets emerge, new dramas and financial scandal erupt, and everyone from the traditional grandparents to the millennial grandchildren wants a say in the hotel's future. Business and pleasure clash in this fast-paced, hilarious, nostalgia-filled story, where the hotel owners rediscover the magic of a bygone era of nonstop fun, even as they grapple with what might be their last resort. The hotel is the focus in both of these stories, as well as a major refurbishment, so I think this should be a really good, solid read-alike for the Hotel Nantucket. There are several nonfiction titles which would be a good fit, The Plaza by Julie Sato and The Barbizon by Paulina Bren, both books I've read and loved, and they really do a deep dive into what it was like to work at these hotels and how everything operated. The other book that chronicles life at a hotel is A Gentleman in Moscow by Amor Tolls, one of my all-time favorite reads, so I would definitely include that one as well. Thanks, Adrian, for submitting a read-alike request, and I hope you enjoy these recommendations. And now, on to my conversation with Kathleen Grissom. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, Kathleen. I am absolutely delighted that you are here to chat with me. How are you? I'm fine, and thank you so much for having me. I appreciate this. Absolutely. I thought Crow Mary was such an interesting story, and I have so many questions, and I can't wait to learn more. Good. Well, before we do that, would you just give me a quick synopsis of the book for those that won't have read it yet? It's difficult for me to give that synopsis. I know I should have that all ready to go. But there's so many different moving parts to this story. However, I'll try to keep it brief. There was a, a young crow woman that I saw as a docent up in Fort Walsh in Saskatchewan. And I was drawn to her because she was standing there and she was saying, my name is Crow Mary. I was 16 years old at the time of a massacre that happened up here in the Cypress Hills. I was 16 years old and newly married. And when I saw the four women who were going to be they were going to be massacred, but first they were dragged back to the fort and they were going to be raped and then murdered. I took my own two guns and I went in and I saved those women. 
And I had this chill go through me and I thought, that's a story that I need to tell. And so I don't know if that's a great synopsis, but that is what my inspiration was for telling this story. No, I think that's perfect. That gives readers an idea of what the story's about. And we'll talk further about some of the other details. And that is actually one of my questions for you, is how hmm. you roped all of the information about Crow Mary and what was happening in the country at the time, and were able to corral it into a story that had to take a lot of work. It did. I actually have been researching this story since 2002. Not consistently, but I kept going back to it. So I've been doing a whole lot of research. And also it took the research I needed was to pull me into that time period around 1873. But I also had to study this culture that was completely foreign to me, and that was the Crow culture. So that was part of the challenge for writing this story. Well, that was also going to be a question for you. I knew you had come across a story over two decades ago. Did you always know you wanted to write it or did it sort of percolate and you kept thinking about it and returning to it? What was that like for you? I'll tell you how that came about. I was with my parents in Saskatchewan. I'm originally from Saskatchewan and I was visiting my parents back around 2000, the year 2000. And we went to this place called Fort Walsh, which was in the Cypress Hills. This is in Saskatchewan. And if you know the plains at all, it's very, very flat. But when you're driving along, all of a sudden, and this is, as I said, in Saskatchewan, there is this place called the Cypress Hills and this beautiful rolling countryside that is so unexpected, covered with fir trees, just a beautiful area. At this place, there was this fort that had been built by the Northwest Mounted Police back in 1875. And there were docents there that were dressed and ready to tell the story of how this came about. I was drawn to a docent who was standing over on a hill. And she was a young woman, and she was dressed as a Crow Native woman. She was telling the story, and she said, When I was 16 years old, I was newly married to a fur trader, Abe Farwell. And while we came up to do fur trading in this area, there was a massacre that happened with 40 Assiniboine Natives. During that massacre, four of the women were brought back to the fort and they were going to be raped and murdered by these bad men that were wolf. They were known as wolfers or fur traders. And I single-handedly took my two guns and I went in and I saved them. And when she said that, I had this deep chill that went through me and I thought, I'm supposed to be writing about her story. I just knew it inside of me. I was still writing The Kitchen House at that time, but I just, I couldn't let go of her. And I knew she was there. And I knew that I was going to be, I was committed at that point. When I heard those words and had that chill go through me, I was committed. And I stayed committed all of those years. So you wrote the other books with this sort of in the background, slowly working on the research, and then decided this was the time to turn your attention to Crow Mary. That's right. That's right. I was going to actually write her story right after I finished The Kitchen House. But as I was doing the research, I, I couldn't feel her, and I knew I needed to feel her. And I was pulling this research together. But my other character from the kitchen house was blocking me. I knew it was Jamie <laughs> from the kitchen house. And it was as though there was a blanket down in front of me, and I couldn't absorb what I needed to from Crow Mary. And he was letting me know that I was meant to tell his story next. He said, I need to have my story told, then you can worry about Crow Mary. That's exactly right. That's, he didn't say it, say it, but it was what I felt, right? Right, exactly. But that's exactly what he was saying. Nope, 
this, you first need to write my story and then you come back to Crow Mary. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I was fascinated with all of the research that you did and I want to hear more about it. I read some in the acknowledgments, but I felt like you did a beautiful job of bringing the crow's life and the way they did things and all of that to the forefront, but it's woven right into the story. Like I didn't feel like I was reading a history lesson. I felt like Mm -hmm. I was reading this fascinating novel with all of these really cool details. That had to be difficult to learn an entire new culture like that. So how did you approach it? Well, at the very beginning, I was really lucky because I started to just do a little bit of research. And in that research, I went on to Ancestry and for some reason, you know, Ancestry.com. And I, for some lucky, amazing reason, I met Nedra Brown through that. And she is Cromary's great-granddaughter. And she was just so encouraging and so inviting. And then I began to put some feelers out to some of the Crow people. And again, I was just so, so lucky that uh, I had people who were amazing in the way the Crow people were amazing in the way that they were encouraging me to go forward with this. So I had loads of questions. And the very first man that I met with, George Reed, also known as Plays With His Face, was this amazing older man, an elder, and he sort of took me under his wing and began to answer questions. And then he began to introduce me to other people. Another man that I met was Elias Goes Ahead. At the beginning of the story, there is a battle that takes place when Crow Mary is a little girl. She's then known as Goes First. And she was at this very well-documented, very well-known battle at Pryor Creek. I didn't have a clue about a crow battle. I didn't have any idea. And Elias had done an 18-year study of that battle alone. And he, again, took me under his wing. He gave me his notes that he had from 18 years of study and said, use this to refer to when she's telling her story. So that's the kind of support I had. There was another elder, Janine Pease, loves to pray. She was the founder of the Little Bighorn College that is on the campus of the Crow Reservation. She took me under her wing. And then Janice Wilson is an elder as well, bird of excellence. And she just really has been my go-to person for all. I mean, I just hate to think of how many times I texted her or emailed her or called her. And she walked me through so many of the, of the really important details of understanding the culture. And one of the two of them read the book to make sure you had all of the Crow details correct. Isn't that right? Janine did that, yes. That's so helpful, just so you could make sure you felt like you had represented everything the way they would have wanted it done. Well, that was my concern because as a white woman coming in and writing about another culture, my concern was that I was going to, in in small ways, disappoint them and not be correct, not have the details correct. So I was really, really concerned about that. And I didn't have just Janine read that she read the final draft, of course, but Janice was the one that I kept going back to. And there were many others as well that I would call and check in with them and make sure that I was getting the details right. And I love the foreword from Nedra, Cromary's great-granddaughter, that she writes about meeting with you and the book and everything. I thought it was beautiful. Yes, yes, it was. And meeting her was beautiful. I met with her. She actually came out to visit for a while. She and her husband came out to visit. And uh, then when I went to Montana, 
Uh, we visited with them every time I went out to Montana, about five or six times over the course of uh, all those years. And I was so grateful that you included a map at the beginning of the book because I kept referring back to it all of the time to understand mm-hmm. exactly which area we were talking about and where they were. Was that your idea? I'm always so grateful when there are maps in books. No, that was my editor, Trish Todd, who thought of that. And she said, I think we're going to need something like that because just for the very reason you expressed, where the readers are going to, to want to know something more about this topography. So that was Trish's idea. So where is the current day Crow Reservation? It is in the southern part of Montana, south of Billings, and south of Hardin in Montana. Okay, I just wasn't sure where they were today. I wasn't familiar with the Crow at all. I've obviously heard about them, but I didn't know much about them. So that was one of the things I really enjoyed about your book. I felt like I really learned a lot more. Well, I'm discovering, Cindy, that few people really know about the Crow people. Isn't that interesting? And I I kind of was wondering why. My whole family is from Oklahoma, so I know a lot more about the tribes in Oklahoma and that region than I do farther north. And so it was really interesting to learn who their rivalries were with, the different things that were important to them, the way their culture functioned. I I just thought it was all very, very interesting. Yes. Well, what was also interesting for me, what, what sort of surprised me, and this was my own lack of education, there was not a common language. I thought that all of the tribes had the same language. And that was not true at all. Each one is very specific to their own culture. They each have very specific cultures. And one of the things you bring up in the book is that there were hand signals that were used between the tribes and between the tribes and white, the white people that were arriving to help with communication a little bit because the language was so different. Yes, it was, it was very, very important that, that each person knew how to do these. Hand, they were hand signals or hands. Hand speak, they called it. And it's still uh, used today, actually. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, that's Mm -hmm. interesting. Well, it does make sense. If you have all these different languages, it makes it a lot easier for people to communicate if there's one common thread. Well, it's very similar to the way that the deaf communicate with hand talk. Yes, that does make sense. Yes. Well, Crow Mary was really tough. I was so impressed with everything she did and how she just stuck with her beliefs and was not letting anybody run over her. And I just thought that was so amazing. Yes. When I started to do research, I found references to her. She was known as Crow Mary. She was known as Big Mary. She was known as Mean Mary. And so I kind of just allowed her to eventually evolve using all of those names. And if she was called those names by some of those frontier men who were some real tough cookies, you can imagine she had a strong, strong persona. I was very glad that some of them were afraid of her. They were, they were very afraid of her. Well, and they should have been. She was tough. She was able to take care of herself and her family, and she was going to survive, and they would too. Absolutely. And you're just so thankful for women like that. Well, they're a darn good example, aren't they? They really are. Mm-hmm. So you decided to tell her story through historical fiction versus telling a historical nonfiction version of it. Did you make many changes? Did you stay close to her story? What did that look like for you? I stayed as close to her story as would make it believable. There were other things that she actually did that no one would have believed. And so I had to sort of write within that realm of a believable story. But I 
on the whole, like all of the details about, now, of course, you can imagine at the time where she saved those women, that is fiction. However, I'm also reluctant to call it fiction because what I do when I write, I do the research and I see the research as setting the stage. And once I have that stage set, and by that I mean, if she walks into a room or if she walked into the teepee, I needed to know exactly the layout of the teepee. If she would go over to a corner and pick something up, I needed to know what was in that corner. I set the stage. And when that stage is set within me, I then try to get out of the way and I let her come in and then I pick up my pencil and I follow what she's showing me and what she does. She pulls me into her so that I can see through her eyes and I can hear her speak. And that's what I write. That's how I write her story. That's how I wrote her story. I love that. One of the things that she mentioned over and over again as she was telling her story was how difficult it was for her to move from a teepee to living indoors and sleeping on a bed versus sleeping on the ground. I was fascinated with that. And I kept thinking about it over and over again as you were writing her. What a change. I mean, I knew all of this, but the way you portrayed it really made it so vivid for me. What a shock and a change so much of this had to be for not only Crow Mary, but for all of the Crow people and for any other Native Americans experiencing something similar. Yes, that's when, as I said, when I let her come in and tell the story and I get myself out of the way, I was with her or I was I was experiencing this, especially when at the beginning when they moved to the fort and she was expected to come and sleep in this little cabin. And I just could feel how stifling it was for her and how difficult it was for her almost to breathe. And she longed to be on the on the ground. And it's so strange because in today's world, I don't know about you, but I've been told many times by different by different friends that I have, in order to ground ourselves, we take off our shoes and we go out and we walk on the ground on the earth, right? And so when you think about her and how that must have taken away that grounding for her, because she was used to sleeping, having that closeness to Mother Earth, and was then expected to be lifted up off the earth and in this dark room that she felt she was smothering in. So yes, it, was, it must have been really, really difficult to adjust to that. Such a fundamental aspect of her personality and her culture and her way of life. And I just could so vividly feel like, feel what it was like for her to have that ripped from her. That's right. It's exactly right. Well, what surprised you when you were writing the book? Oh, that's such a good question. And I don't know that I have an answer. What surprised me, I think, most was the, the subtleties of the culture. The, the Crow culture is very sophisticated. And I was so off base with what I used to think what would have been their system of justice, as an example. It was just so much more sophisticated. It was just so much more sophisticated than I had ever anticipated or expected. I intentionally did not include a lot of their spiritual traditions because I didn't feel that it was my place to include those things. I think that that would be better told from someone who is of that culture. And I really didn't want to impose myself or my own views or my own thinking or make a mistake. You included that in your acknowledgments. And I thought that that was really beautiful that you thought through that. And I can remember reading that 
other places as well that for a lot of these Native American cultures, that is a very personal and private thing for them and not something they want shared widely. So I was glad that you respected that. Yes, I most certainly did, or I tried to. Mm -hmm. What about the highlight of writing the book? The highlight of writing the book was when I finished draft after draft after draft, and I finally had my editor say, okay, I think we're ready to go. (laughs) (laughs) The end, right? (laughs) The end. Uh Because there were so many anticlimactic points, and part of that was COVID was involved, and there was just a whole lot of other things that were involved. And I worked so hard to try to respect the culture and respect the people and still be open enough to let her come through and let her express herself. And that was the goal. But I just didn't know if I was missing that. That's what I was. So when when all was said and done and I was given the final go ahead, that that I think was a highlight for me. You're like, hallelujah. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. You mentioned in your author's notes that you had two editors. Was that because someone left or because they wanted two different people to work on the book? What was that about? Well, that's that's kind of what happened. This was not my... Trish Todd had been with me through both my first two books, and they were a particular kind of book. They were definitely a particular kind of book. Cromeria is a whole different ballgame, really, because it's based on fact. And it's also a Western Western subject, I think I can say. So uh, Alexandra Shelley came in and was so open and so helpful with um, helping me deal not only with the facts I was trying to stick to these to these facts, but to also bring in more of the feel of the West. And I just I needed both of them. I just needed both of them. So they were both there for me and wonderful. It's a trickier subject matter, so I can see that. And as you said, something just very different than what you had done before. Mm-hmm. It was something very different, yes, which it didn't feel like to me, but clearly it was. I was so immersed in it that uh, it was hard for me to step back and really see the difference between my original, my first two books and this book. It all felt like the same to me because the process was the same. I did the research and then I got out of the way and I let the characters tell the story. And that's what happened here as well. So it didn't really feel that different to me, but it was different. That makes sense. And I can see that. What about character-wise, writing them? Were there any characters that were just super easy to write or any that were more difficult and that you had a harder time getting the sense of them or getting them down onto the page? There was uh, Stiller came in. Stiller was, now Stiller was fiction. And he just showed up one day. Uh, one of my editors, I don't, I think it was Trish, who said, you know, who would who would be doing something like that? And I thought, well, this guy Stiller, and he just showed up just out of nowhere. And so when he came in, he was so easy to write, but uh, he was quite a nasty, nasty work. So I like to write about him because he came very clear and very forceful. Jeannie also was a work of fiction. She was part of fiction, and that was Cromary's friend. But she was also, she came in and she was just very clear and she was, I saw her immediately and uh, the conversation between the two of them just flowed. So that was terrific. I love Jeannie. I just loved her personality, her God bless it or whatever it is she would say every time. Uh-huh. She was just fabulous. I was happy that Mary had her even though she was fictional. Mm-hmm. But up in uh, the Cypress Hills, 
when Hardwick came onto the scene, he was the real bad wolfer. They called them wolfers then. Those were the men who used strychnine to kill animals. And they were hated by uh, the native people because the natives' dogs uh, would sometimes eat the strychnine and they would die. Hardwick came on the scene. And as soon as he came, I just had this sense of backing away. And of course, I was experiencing him through Mary's eyes. But I still had this real sense of I did not want to go close to the man. And when I started to do research on him, because there's a lot of documentation about him, he was really, he was really, well, they now think that he, he was young. He was only about 26 or 27 years old. But they feel that he had come from the East. He had come from fighting in the Civil War and that he was just bloodthirsty, that he was really suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And a lot of these wolfers were, they felt they had come from the East and they were just looking for trouble. So I could sense him and I could feel him and I did not like the man. It must be hard to write about those type of people like Hardwick and Stiller just because they were so awful. Just the things they did were so horrible. And to have them inhabiting you or trying to get their story onto the page, I would think would be disturbing. Well, it is because I'm looking through her eyes. So as an example, when she first met Stiller, he showed up. She was by herself in her own teepee, and he showed up, and she was uh, sort of ice in an isolated spot. Uh, and he was a very large man. And I, through her eyes, I just felt what she was feeling, and uh, she was afraid and confused and didn't know what to make of him because he was saying that he was Abe's friend, and she didn't want to in the crow lifestyle. They have deep friendships, and you don't uh, insult a friend by not inviting them or making them feel comfortable and at home. So that was her instinct was to make him feel at home, but she did not trust him with good reason. But that's what I was feeling. I felt what she was feeling. And you really got that down onto the page, which is what I liked, is that I could feel her fear and her uncertainty. She did want to do the right thing, but she also was getting terrible signals from him. And what he was saying he was meaning it double-edged, you know, like, I'm really friendly and let's be friendly. And she's like, friendly? She was trying to understand what he was meaning, knowing that he wasn't really meaning friendly, like, let's be kind to each other. And of course, he was waving that bottle of whiskey and wanting her to drink. Right. And that frightened her. Absolutely. And you talked a little bit about the strychnine, and I thought that was interesting, and it was something I had not been familiar with, that they would poison buffalo or wolves or whatever it was with the strychnine, and then other animals would come in eat off the carcasses, and also get sick and die. Dogs, other types of animals. I didn't know that it happened. And again, how terrible. But there was a, there was a need for wolf, and they were looking for the wolf. Uh, I'm trying to think of the right word, not skin, but... Pelt. Yes, there you, thank you. The, uh, so there was a need in the East for wolf pelts. And the wolfers that came out, the men who came out, the fur traders who came out, decided that to you they would put strychnine just a little bit of strychnine on a buffalo carcass and then all the wild animals would come and eat from that and would die so there would be all of these carcasses all around one of these buffalo and that is why of course uh, the indigenous tribes hated them so much because so many so many of these animals were killed needlessly absolutely yes that's the way they they got many many Wolf pelts. Yes. I did not know that until I was reading about it in your book. Well, I always like to talk about titles and covers because I know so much more goes into them than people sometimes realize. 
How did you decide on Crow Mary as the title? Obviously, it was her name, but was that always how you wanted to title it? Or how did that come about? That came about from the very beginning. Back in 2002, I had in my head that the title would be Crow Mary. And by some miracle, we managed to keep it that way. Because as you know, titles are always being changed. And there is always a lot of, um, usually a lot of, a big brouhaha about titles. But we were able to keep Crow Mary, and I was so, so grateful for that. I agree. I think it is wonderful, and it definitely obviously depicts the story, but it is very easy to remember and honors her. Yes, it does. That's the way I felt. It honors her. And even though it wasn't her given name, her given Crow name, she adopted the name of Crow Mary and uh, was satisfied with that name and used that name from what I knew and from the information and the the research that I did, she was fine calling herself Crow Mary. She was very proud of being Crow. And uh, she allowed her adopted English name, Mary, to be used as well. Another thing I learned in your book, that a lot of times white men just named all Native American people Mary, all Native American women, Mary. I did not know that. Yes, they were just a generic name, Mary. Hmm. Gosh, you just look back and think, how did all of these things happen? It was a different time and it was a different place. That's not an excuse. But in order to understand, we really do have to step back in time and really try to put ourselves into that into that time frame and look at the world. It, It was a different world. Absolutely. And I actually say that to my children all the time when some of the things from the 80s that I'll tell them about and they're like, and I was like, you really have to understand the time and the place and see how far we've come. And you have to put these things in context. And so I I do agree with that. And I love the cover. Red is my favorite color. So I was so happy when I saw the cover. And does the red have a significance for the crow? Or was it just a good color to outline the feather? How did that all come about? Well, Kevin Redstar is a very well internationally known crow artist. And he was consulted and he did some of the work on the cover. So what his choices were and why they were made the way they were, I didn't question. I just loved them. Me too. Yeah. So I don't believe that the red was a particular color used to represent anything, but I could be wrong on that. But I was very, very proud to have Kevin Redstar work on the cover. That's wonderful that they brought him in. Yes. Mm -hmm. I was really, really happy about that. Well, before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked. Oh, my well, I know I would recommend there's a Rachel Beanland has a book out now that came out in, I think, the beginning of April. The House is on Fire. She's excellent, excellent, beautifully written historical fiction. And then I don't know if you're familiar with Sadiqa Johnson. She wrote The Yellow Wife, but she also has The House of Eve out that's out right now. And that's just a, an excellent historical fiction. I love both of those books, and I've interviewed both of them, and they're both Virginia authors, so you're all right there together. And they're both actually from Richmond. But then I have another one, uh, If the Creek Don't Rise, that's a personal friend I have, Leo Weiss. And that's just, if you're interested in the, in the southern area of this country, you'll love Leah's book, If the Creek Don't Rise, as well. Okay, I've heard of it, but I haven't read it, so I'll add it to my list. You'll love it. You'll enjoy it. Great. Well, Kathleen, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I loved Crow Mary, and I really loved chatting with you about it. Well, thank you, Cindy. I appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts From a Page. If you enjoy the show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts From a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, do you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) Right.